start a new series of messages today, and uh, it's going to be out of the Gospel of John. Again, if you're uh, newer to Scottsdale Bible Church, it might be important for you to know that over the last year, we've been on and off uh, studying the book of John, and so we've done a, a couple of series already out of John chapters 1 through 4, and then last fall out of chapters 5 through 6. And this spring, going into the summer, we're going to be taking a look now at chapters 7 through 11. And, uh, and then next year, uh, or actually next fall, we're going to begin the second half of John. So, uh, you know, we're Scottsdale Bible Church. We have for uh, five decades taught the word unashamedly, hopefully with passion and with conviction, never in a boring way, I think you'll find, but in a way that hopefully goes deeper uh, into the word of God than uh, we have before. So let's bow and pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Father. I do thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth, as we're even going to see today, for this idea that you have revealed truth to us in Jesus and in the Gospels and in the Bible as a whole. And so I pray, God, that as we open up your book now, that you would help us to understand rightly what you have revealed. And Lord, our commitment back is to be the kind of men and women that will live passionately uh, and faithfully what we know to be true. God, empower us to do that by your spirit. Now we pray in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So I got to tell you, over the years, I have experienced a spiritual process, a pathway of the soul, if you will, that if I don't miss my guess, many of you have experienced as well, and it goes like this. I got to a point in my life where I came to believe in God through accepting Jesus Christ, into my life as Lord and Savior, and I experienced what the Bible calls salvation. But then as time went on in my newfound faith, I began to struggle at times with doubt, sometimes intellectual doubt, sometimes more personal doubt, and being able to trust Jesus during difficult times. But then as I worked through that doubt, as I stayed in the ring with God and pursued my doubts with intellectual integrity and with personal strength provided by the Spirit, I found that I came out of those times of doubt as a more deeper follower of Jesus Christ. How many of you have ever had that kind of experience? Raise your hand. How many of you don't like to raise your hand? Raise your hand. All right. So I, I think many of us have had that experience. In other words, it looks like this. We've gone from, it looks like this. We've gone from belief and doubt to following. I, I think that's a common experience of a lot of Christians. We start off with belief and trust and faith in Jesus Christ, which is the very nature of salvation. The Bible makes that very clear. But this is a fallen world, and we have finite and fallen minds. And so there's times where we go through difficult times, and the vast majority of us, not all of us, but the vast majority of us struggle in our faith, and doubts set in, and what have you. But as you stay in the ring and work through those things, you find you're strengthened in your faith, and you actually go to a deeper level of following. And I got to tell you, this has been a process or a cycle for me over the last 35 years. And sometimes I cycle through it in two or three weeks, sometimes two or three months. There's even been times where it's taken years and some of the deeper things of my faith to cycle through that. But I always come out 
a more strengthened follower. And if you can relate to this at all, if it's been anywhere near your spiritual experience, then you can understand what John is trying to lay out for us in giving us Jesus's life in the gospel of John. Because this is the pattern that John takes us through in laying out Jesus's life in his gospel. You see, the first four chapters of the gospel of John are all about belief. We did an entire series on that. It begins in chapter 1 with John saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's laying out theologically Jesus as the preexistent God from all of eternity. And then John the Baptist gives witness to Jesus as the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And then in chapter 2, Jesus starts his miracles, which show that he's very different than just a human being. And then in chapter 3, he talks about what it means to be born again through faith. And by the time you get to chapter 4, he's talking with that woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And he's talking about what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. Again, it's all about faith. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 4, i got to tell you, the crowds are fired up, the disciples are fired up, and many people, it says, are flocking to Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah and placing their faith and their trust in him. It's belief and it's core to becoming a Christian. But then, interestingly, as you turn the page into chapter 5 and then chapter 6, doubt begins to set in. Jesus is continuing to do healings. He's continuing to teach people about the true nature of who God is and how he came directly from God, even as God. And then he feeds the 5,000 and he walks on water, two obvious miracles. But you see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day don't buy it. They argue that his miracles are sorcery. They argue that the things that he teaches aren't collating with the Old Testament and that he's a fraud. And the people are starting to believe the religious leaders more than they do Jesus. So doubt had come to town, built its house, and the people were starting to live there. In fact, this is how it ends toward the end of John chapter 6 and John 6 verse 66. Don't read anything into that, by the way. <laughs> you know, somebody always sends me an email saying, oh, 666, come on. I mean, this was, this was written like, Thousand, yeah, thousand years after the Bible was written, we added chapter and verse distinctions. So just ignore that. It says at the end of whatever chapter this is, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So there you got it. At chapter 6 ends on kind of a downer note where everybody is basically abandoning Jesus and caving into doubt. And it's right at this point, it's a wonderful, wonderful gospel, in John's laying out of Jesus' earthly ministry, that now Jesus is going to turn up the heat. And he's going to call the crowds, the Jewish leaders, even his disciples, to a deeper level of belief and faith. He's going to call them to lay it all down and begin to follow. And so from chapters 7 through 11 of John, it's all about Jesus' interactions with his remaining disciples and the skeptical Jewish leaders and even the crowds, what the Bible calls the multitudes. And it's all going to come down to who's going to follow and who is not. And as we make our way through these chapters over the next 10 or 11 weeks here at our church, here's what you're going to find. We're going to take each section and notice at least one key trait that Jesus gives us that is a trait that marks a follower of him. 
traits that you and I need to add grit and substance to our faith if we're ever going to navigate the valleys of doubt, if we're ever going to navigate the difficulties of this world, things that actually make us followers, things that we believe, things that we do. And I think if you hang in there with us in the series, you're going to find yourself growing in your faith and commitment to God through Christ. So let's begin by getting our bearings straight. And I'm going to read for you the first 13 verses of chapter 7. And this will act as kind of an introduction to this entire series as well as this section of John's gospel. So here's what it says on the coattails of them going from belief to doubt. Here's what happens next. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said this, these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Uh, so let's notice what's happening here. Jesus begins this scene where he's spent most of his time already in northern Galilee, so if you've ever been to Israel, you know that that's the far north part of Israel. For our purposes, if Phoenix is, say, where Jerusalem is in Israel, uh, Galilee would be where Flagstaff is. So picture Jesus, about a two-hour drive uh, up in the mountains, and that's where he's been doing his ministry. And now he has made his way down to the epicenter of Israel's spirituality, to Judea, to Jerusalem. We'll call it Phoenix for our purposes. That's where Jesus is. And what you need to see more than anything else here, because this sets the tone for the next four chapters, really the backdrop, is that there are three groups of people, I don't know if you caught them, three groups of people that are rather antagonistic to Jesus. They're all doubting who he really is. And they are his family, the Jewish religious leaders, and then the crowds or the multitudes. It says in verse 5 that not even his brothers were believing in him. It says in verse 1 that the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. And then when he showed up in Jerusalem, they're still seeking him. The idea being to, to nab him, and eventually they would. And then in verses 12 and 13, it says the crowds were grumbling amongst each other, uh, making character judgments on Jesus. Some saying he's a good man, some saying that, nah, he's just a, a fake you see, some of you came in here today and you feel like everybody's against you. Guess what? For Jesus, they really were. His entire family, his church, the culture around him. The only ones who are remaining faithful right now are a small handful of uneducated and, 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 and kind of weak-kneed disciples. And some of them are going to waffle here real soon. That's the state of affairs. 
for Jesus at the beginning of chapter 7 here. Everybody's in doubt mode. I like a one expert Bible commentator says it. He says, and I quote, this represents the high point of the hostility for Jesus. And he's right. That's what we got here. And yet it's, a, it's given this backdrop that it's right at this point where Jesus then drops the bomb on them, the first trait needed in order to become a follower of him. And I got to warn you, it's a very powerful trait and for lack of better terms, we're going to call this trait Revelation. Not the book of Revelation, mind you, but the concept, the idea that God reveals his truth to you and I. So we'll say it in sentence form here. Here's our main point. Jesus is the revelation of God to you and me. And I know what I mean by that. I want you to look at what happens next in verses 14 to 16, because this is kind of the, the crescendo here of this entire chapter. It, it says in the backdrop of all of this doubt, this, it says, but when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, now, folks, first thing you need to notice here is that it's obvious to them that Jesus taught like nobody ever taught. That's really important to notice. Uh, Matthew would actually comment on this and well, as well in his gospel. He would say it this way. He would say, for he, Jesus, was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, that, that's, the reason I laugh at that is because, honestly, I mean, I'm a modern-day scribe. I, I hopefully have a better heart than some of them did back then, but I'm a modern-day, for lack of better terms, religious leader. And so what it's saying here, and you got to feel this, is that if Jesus were to show up on the scene today and, and teach here at Scottsdale Bible Church, your impression would be, it ain't nothing like Jamie teaches and you might think I'm good. You might think that I speak to you and all that stuff. But the point is, is that if Jesus came here, it would blow anything I've ever said. I mean, it wouldn't even be a comparison. You'd be going, whoa, Jamie, go. We want to hear Jesus. That's what you would say. Because again, they had some of the most learned scribes, Sadducees, Pharisees, religious leaders back then that knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards and were very good teachers and yet when Jesus showed up on the scene, they said, whoa, it's like nothing these guys ever say. That's what they were experiencing. And so the question you got to be asking yourself, because that's what they were asking back then, is how could this be? I mean, how could Jesus explain God so clearly to them, even better than any of the religious teachers of their day? And the key is found in that simple, easy-to-gloss-over phrase in verse 16 that we're going to park in front of right now when Jesus says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. What in the world does that mean? You need to wrestle with that. This is the linchpin to the first trait of being a follower of Jesus. What does he mean when he says this teaching is not mine, but his who sent me? Let's take it in reverse order. First, focus on that little phrase there, his who sent me. You see, what Jesus is saying there is something he'll spell out in chapter 8 in more detail. He's telling us that he wasn't just another man. 
that he wasn't just some great religious leader. No, he's telling us he was sent from God, from heaven, from all eternity, from the Father himself. As the famous Athanasian Creed would say in the early church, and I quote, the Son is neither made nor created, but begotten of the Father alone. Which means that Jesus emanated from God the Father as God the Son. Don't miss this, gang. The Bible makes it really clear that Jesus preexisted for all of eternity. John's already taught us that in his gospel. We're already supposed to know that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. For all of eternity, Jesus preexisted as the second person of the triune God with the Father, with the Spirit, even before any molecule was created that's made up this universe and earth. And so what Jesus is saying here is that as the second person of the Trinity, as the very God of gods, I was sent by the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, by the Father, to be here on earth. And that's where I come from. And again, if if it's confusing to you now or you're doubting it now, hang in there in this series because when we get to John 8, Jesus is going to make some profound statements on this subject. He's going to make a statement like this, before Abraham was, I am. And he's going to talk about his preexistence to the point that the Pharisees are going to pick up rocks and try to kill him because he is equating himself with God. They understood what he was saying. And that's what we need to see here. He was sent from the Father as God the Son. But then as you're chewing on that, notice the second half, which is really the first half of Jesus' statement here in John 7, 16. And that is that he says, then my teaching is not mine. That's a huge phrase. Because now it makes sense. Because Jesus is from God the Father, as God the Son, sent from God the Father, his teaching is from the triune God, and not completely all his. And so go on to say later, the things that I tell you are things that the Father told me to say. So again, it's a a triune God that we're talking about here. And so Jesus is saying, the things that I'm teaching you are from the Godhead, from God himself. It's God's revelation through me to you. And this is why when when he taught, the, 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 the crowds felt something different from him. Maybe now you can see than they did with anybody else. Because you and I can't make that statement. <laughs> Some of you do, and we lock you up in, in mental homes. Because the reality is, is that if you claim to be God, come in the flesh, no one's going to believe you. But Jesus claimed to be God, and then he proved it, not just with miracles and healings and the nature of who he was, but even whenever he opened up his mouth. People felt like there was something different about the way that he taught. And the answer is given to us here as to why that is true. That's because he gave us truth directly from God. It's knowledge, not like anything of this world. It's what theologians would eventually go on to call revelation. The word comes from the Latin, revelatio, which simply means an unveiling. It pictures something that was once hidden, but now has been revealed. And that's what Jesus came to do, to show us the eternal truths of who God is, what he is like, who you are, what you're really like, why you need salvation, how you can know God, how you can walk with God, how you can live a life of righteousness this side of heaven. He came to show us all of that, and it was his truth, his revelation to us. 
And then that revelation, don't miss this, extends to the other biblical writers inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this, he says, but we as apostles impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified Jesus, the Lord of glory. He says, these things God has revealed to us. It's revelation directly from God. That's what we're talking about here. It's interesting. In the, in the backdrop of all of this doubt and antagonism, this is the thing that Jesus decides to park on first. And the reason is, I believe, this. And that's because you and I live in a world and culture, and especially today in our world and culture, but it's existed ever since the beginning of time, in which humanity tries to understand the nature of reality, even spiritual reality. Tell me if this isn't true. By simply relying on what we think in our own mind is right and good, without ever asking has God revealed anything already to us? And the reality is, is that if all you do is live life thinking, well, here's what I think is right and here's what I think is not right, at best it's going to be hit or miss and at worst it's far off the mark. Because without outside help, without God speaking to us in his word, we are, as Walker Percy would say, we are lost in the cosmos. But we have no clue as to what really is Trump. In the Old Testament, they experienced this. In the book of Judges, it says this. It's one of my favorite verses in the Judges. It says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. <laughs> I, one of the reasons I love this passage is it doesn't say that everything they did was wrong, does it? <laughs> I mean, they did some right things. It's just that you couldn't count on it because their sense of rightness was only based on what they thought was right and true. And again, that's how so many people today in our world function. And when you function like that, here's the point, gang, is that you fail to understand that there might just be times in life where there's a difference between what God says and what you think. Amen? Oh, that was a good amen. I'm glad you guys agree with that. It's humbling, isn't it? It's humbling. I mean, I get it. I mean, it's almost an insult to our intelligence for God to say that everything we think, that what we think might be right, might not be right. <laughs> and then you can have a thought or a theory or a postulate and you think it sounds so cogent to you and then you even tell it to some of your friends and it sounds cogent to them. And then someday God's gonna come along and say, you thought, what? Really? And your friends bought that? I mean, that, that's what's going on here. And God says all it takes is just a little bit of humility for you to realize that you're not God's gift to intelligentsia and that the reality is you might be wrong and that that's why he's given us revelation. That's why he's given us truth for us to rally around that comes directly from him. That's what was going on with Jesus. And again, one of the reasons this is so important is that it'd be one thing if it was just our world that functioned this way. But I gotta tell you, gang, I see way too many church folk function this way. I really do. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but Christians tend to have an opinion on a lot of things. You guys ever notice that? And so, you know, my week is just filled with Christians telling me their opinions on things. And I'm, I'm paid to listen, so I got to listen to this stuff. And, 
And, and there's times where, where Christians are telling me their opinions on, on very important issues. And, and again, I'm pretty gentle when face-to-face, -face, but I, I, I think to myself, I'm not sure you've read the Bible. I mean, honestly, you're telling me your opinion on this, and I go, I, I'm almost afraid to ask you if you can defend that biblically because I'm not sure that you could. And I'm talking about really important issues. People come into me and say, I'm divorcing my spouse. I'll say, why? And they'll tell me their reason, and I'll think to myself, well, well that's not a biblical reason. Are, are you going to go through with that? Somebody will come in and ask, and, and start talking to me about, say, sexual identity or an issue like that. And, and, and again, I, I tend to be more of a counselor, so I'll ask, well, what do you think on that subject? And what I hear, I can tell you, doesn't collate at all with what the Bible says. And this is an already convinced, fairly regular church person type of follower of Jesus. And the list goes on and on. I mean, I, wealth and generosity, parenting, relationships and friendship, the nature of work. And we haven't even gotten to the deeply theological issues yet, like the nature of God, the Holy Spirit, the nature of salvation, end times, the gifts of the Spirit, how to handle gray areas. I mean, these are all important issues. And here's the most important thing you need to realize. These are all issues that the Bible, God's revelation, has spoken to. And at the very least, what we're simply establishing here based on the words of Jesus is that a follower of him cares that God has spoken on these things and wants to read them and know them and assimilate them into their lives. And again, you know, after last service, somebody came up to me and said, well, yeah, but, but, but even once you do that, don't you sometimes disagree, you know, amongst each other and what the Bible is saying? What's the answer to that? Yeah, of course you do. And we're big boys and girls, at least I am, and I can disagree with Jeff on what his biblical opinion might be on a particular issue, but did you hear the key word? Biblical. I mean, honestly, I just died to have a church in which we're all rallying around the Bible and at least arguing about that stuff, like Kathy and I do sometimes. That's okay. That's good. We're all Bereans, checking the word to see if what Jamie was saying is true. But it drives me batty, and it should, that there's times where people spout off on opinions and we haven't really developed or even cared to just think what God might say on that. And here's why I know <laughs> that we do it. Because, And again, I empathize with this. I'm the same way as you guys here. One of the reasons that we fall into this is because we really are afraid and maybe don't want to hear what God has to say on that, right? Let's just be honest. I mean, I've, I've experienced that. There's been times where I'm going down the road and I, I, I'm dealing with an ethical thing right now in my personal life. Not like a big thing that would disqualify me, but kind of a small thing. You know, should I steal pencils from the church? Things like that, you know? And, <laughs> and I know what's right to do. And I know what God says. But there's a part of me that would just rather look the other way. Can you relate? So I get it. There's times we don't want to hear his revelation. But the reality is, is that if we say that, if we, if we stick to that, then don't complain to me that you're struggling being a follower of him. Because if you don't begin with his revelation, you'll never be the kind of follower that you want to be and that he wants you to be. Now, let me give you kind of a positive example here because the Bible talks on, on so many different levels about so much. Um, most people don't realize that the Bible does talk about work and wealth, economics, of, of how you and I are supposed to amass wealth and how we're supposed to work for it. And it's an amazing theology. In Proverbs 13, 11, this is one of my favorite Proverbs. It says this, it says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Chew on that one this week. <laughs> At the very least, what it's saying is, 
is that God's intended process or pattern for how you and I are supposed to get a comfortable living is to work hard for our money and gather it little by little through work. We'll get to that piece in a minute here. And then save and over time allow it to increase and that as we do that responsibly, we might get to some point someday where we realize we have a good little nest egg and maybe can retire or do whatever with, leave some to our kids, and that that's God's plan here. But the negative side of it is that if you try to gain it hastily, that's not God's plan. And you're saying, well, how would I gain it hastily? <laughs> this is one of the reasons, gang, that I'm not big fans of casinos. I, I know, I knew you'd say that, but I'm not. Again, I've gone on record saying I, I can't point blank say that gambling's a sin. I can't. I'll, I'll, I'll confess that to you. I can't point to chapter and verse that says it's a sin to ever gamble. Here's what I am convinced of, though, based on this verse and many others. I, I, there's no way you can argue with me that it's healthy for the soul. Not even close. And, and you know, I sit there at the Circle K when I'm buying my pop, you know, and, and, and I sit there, and, and, and sometimes I get stuck behind the guy you know, this going, okay, I, I number 25 and 43 and 68, and, you know, he's picking his numbers. And I, and I sit there and go, really, really, really? This is the sum of your life? You're, you're going to pin a, your hopes on this? And again, you know what drives me nuts is I know the average Christian will say, well, you know, you shouldn't do that because the odds of you winning are, and I go, what's that have to do with it? Who, who cares about the odds? of? Really, if the odds were better, would you say that's Okay. Don't get me wrong, the odds are not with you and it's a stupid thing to do, but that's not the argument. The argument is, is that that is not God's best for you, amen? amen? Sitting in a casino going like this is not God's best for you, amen? amen. And I know some of you are getting hot under the collar, I get it. I, I sat through a talk the other day, it was really funny, I sat through a Bible study where this guy was talking about health, eating, and weight. And oh, I was like, oh, crud, I got to sit here and listen to that. <laughs> and everything he said was true, everything. I mean, he nailed me on every level, and I left, like, with my tail between my legs and all this. And I thought, is that how some people feel sometimes when I preach? And it is. So I get it. I know, it's, you know, you're feeling a little bit on the mark here, but just go with me on this, gang. Think biblically, because the opposite of this is also true. And that is that when we develop a cogent theology of work and saving and doing things God's way, it can lead to great blessing. Our church right now uh, is being led by the chairman of our board, uh, Dave Hall. And Dave will uh, be going off the board this uh, June, his second term that he served here. And I got to tell you, this guy is a wonderful leader and man of God. I'm so proud of all of our elders. But Dave's done a great job of leading the board uh, over the last year and, and, and in a sense leading myself and, and our staff. And uh, Dave's got an amazing story. He's, he's, he's a farm kid from the Midwest, went to DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana and did well there and went into business. And he did exactly what the Proverbs is saying here. He, he, he little by little gained and had a modicum of success, if not great success, and actually amassed a pretty good uh, nest egg at, at a rather early time in his life. Some of you can relate. And so, you know, 20, 25 years ago, moved here to Scottsdale. Dave's now in his 70s, and he built a nice house and a nice community here and started hitting the sticks a little bit more and realized he didn't necessarily have to work anymore. But because he had a right theology, he realized that his working days were not over. 
He just wouldn't get paid for what he did. And so at that time, he started working with a little upstart ministry that now many of you are aware of called Luis Palau International Ministries. And he became a really good friend of Luis's, and he really got behind Luis. And Dave became the first and only chairman of the board for Luis Palau International Ministries. And for 30 years, Dave has flown on his own nickel all around the world to support Luis and has recruited staff for the organization. He's really poured his heart and soul into that organization, all because God has blessed him. And he realized his work days were not over. It was just a different kind of work. And then it was amazing. At one point, Dave said, you know, I'd like to be involved in my church, Scottsdale Bible Church. And some of you complain and whine to me, you know, I want to get involved, but I can't seem to get involved. And I go, well, you know, you, you got to do what? You got to start small. I mean, we are a church that are very protective of our leadership that, you know, we just don't allow anybody to jump into leadership here. You need to prove yourself and you need to prove yourself here. And, and so Dave decided about 20 years ago to join the Sunday school class And then he started serving in that Sunday school class. And then they asked him to be the assistant leader of that Sunday school class. And eventually they asked him to lead that Sunday school class. And then he started small groups in his community. And eventually the nominating committee looked at a guy like him and said, I think he would be a great leader at our church. He was selected to be an elder. And then for four years, he served on the elder board, not in one of the lead positions, but in a support role. And then he got invited back onto the elder board and eventually was selected as the chairman of our elders. Uh, but, but notice how he did it. Whoever gathers little by little will, say this word with me, increase it. He did it in his work. He did it in his service. He did it in his ministry. And, and I can tell you that God has used him powerfully throughout this world and throughout our church. And, and it really is a kind of a living testimony of how this is supposed to work. But here's my point. I don't even know if Dave knew he was doing this, but the reality is, is it all began with revelation. It all began with Dave realizing that it ain't about what he thinks he should do. It's about him understanding what God wants him to do. And whether he could quote Proverbs 13, 11 or not, I don't know, but he did it. He understood how God wants someone to get involved. In fact, we've had conversations to that length that he said, I knew if I ever wanted to get involved in Scottsdale Bible Church, it was going to be little by little, eventually working my way up to show that I'm a faithful servant of God. And you see, that's just one example here, gang, just one small example of how placing yourself under the authority of God's revelation can really make a difference in your life. Some of you are struggling today in certain areas of your life. Again, it might be divorce or sexual identity or an addiction you're dealing with or finances or maybe some other relationship, parenting. And yet the reality is you haven't really been interested in what God might have to say on the subject. Or even if you are, you haven't dug that deep and asked yourself, what does he really say to me through his word? And the reality is, is that many of us who have done so have found great freedom And even times, again, a little bit hot under the collar, but it's been a good hot under the collar as we realize that God doesn't say anything that isn't for his glory and our good. And so the reality is being a follower of him begins with this whole idea of revelation. And let me encourage you with one last thought because we got to wrap this up here. Uh, Jesus will go on to say this, and this is your take-home point, that if you would all care about this subject, And if you'd all wonder how you can go deeper here, here's what Jesus says. An honest heart, which is bent toward God, 
will receive his revelation. How, how do we know this to be true? Look at what he goes on to say in verses 17 and 18. I love this. Right on the coattails of him saying that, you know, uh, that the words I have are his words, for I am sent from him. Jesus says this. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, meaning Jesus' teaching, whether it is of God, God the Father, or whether I speak only of myself, the human Jesus. He says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. I, I love this phrase, willing to do his will. It's a play on words, obviously, in the English. It's a play on words in the original Greek, by the way, too. In other words, it's the same Greek word, will, used here for the Greek word, willing, just a different variation, like in the English. But what Jesus is saying there, and this is so wonderful, he's saying that if our will, if your will, desires to tap in to the very will of God, if that's your heart's mindset, then you will be ready to hear whatever he might have to say to you through his word and through his spirit. It's a disposition of the heart that Jesus is getting at here. And to be sure, it's what kept the religious leaders from being able to hear what Jesus had to say, right? I mean, the only indictment Jesus ever really gave on their lives was, your hearts are not in the right place. You got all the book learning. You got a good standard of living for a century wise. But your hearts are not attuned. They're not bent toward God. And so Jesus pleaded with them, just get your heart right with God. Humble yourself and say, maybe you don't have all the answers. Maybe you need outside help. Maybe God will even say to you things that you don't really understand or even don't want to hear. But as you open yourselves up to them, then maybe, maybe you'll get to know him like you want to know him. Jesus is saying, if your heart and your mind and your life is bent toward him at all, then he will speak to you and you will want to receive it. See, I think this is exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. You know, this passage kind of drives you bonkers. Christians have made this such a superficial passage. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. To one who seeks, finds. To one who knocks, the door will be opened. <laughs> You know, I hear Christians all the time quote this like it's some slot machine or a candy machine where you put your quarter of faith in, ask whatever you want, and God better give it to you. I think, really, that's how you understand this? That's not what this means. In the backdrop of John chapter 7, verses 17 to 18, it's reaffirming what Jesus is saying there, and that is that if your heart wants to truly know God and be about the things of God, if you're asking and seeking and knocking in that way, that he is going to deliver for you. If your heart is wide open to him and saying, God, I want nothing more than your glory, your life flowing in me, whatever your will is, my will wants. Man, if that is your mindset, then you are in a great place to receive his revelation in your life. I mean, isn't that exactly what most of our conversions were about? It was mine. I didn't even know it at the time. I'm a messed up 17-year-old kid but I can remember when I was seeking Jesus, or I learned eventually he was seeking me. But as I was seeking Jesus, I remember just crying out to him saying, show yourself to me. Show yourself to me who you really truly are, and I will forever follow 
you. Have you ever made that promise to God? And you see, God delivered on that. And 35 years ago, I started a journey of becoming a follower of his, but it all began with this idea of his revelation. And so as we wrap up here, maybe the question we should all be asking at the outset of this series on following is this, and maybe this is the only question I want you to ask this week, how open and receptive are we, each of us, at this point in our lives to what God has to say to us? And do we even care about what he has said? Are we falling into our culture's pattern of being highly educated, sophisticated, and self-sufficient to the point that we really don't think we need his truth? Or are we bent toward God in our heart of hearts, open and receptive to all what the reformers called the whole counsel of God, all that God would have to say to us wherever it might take us? See, I think the answer to that question will determine the very nature of what it means for you to be a follower of Jesus. Some of you who really love the Bible have uh, noticed already that we didn't finish the passage. I quoted that it would be John 1, 7, 1 through 36, and that we only got through verse uh, 18. And you're right, we ran out of time. <laughs> and next week I'm going to pick up at verse 37 because we're kind of on a schedule here. And so here's your homework. You guys like homework? Here's your homework. Read the other 18 verses. They continue this theme of revelation. Jesus is going to go on in the very next verses to basically say to the crowds, you guys are hypocrites. You know, you do this on the Sabbath and you blame me for healing on the Sabbath. You don't even, and again, the point is you don't even place yourself under the revelation of God. And then he's going to repeat what he talks about, how his teaching comes from God. And he's going to wrap up with some interesting things. Read in your quiet time this week and see what God might say to you. Because he loves you. He has spoken. And we need to receive it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your truth to us and that, Lord, for 2,000 years and before that, within Old Testament times, for thousands of years, you have chosen to speak to us through the prophets in the Old Testament and now through your Son in the New. And God, I pray that as we are the kind of people, the people of God, that place ourselves under your authority, under your revelation, that God, for some of us who need a real word from you at a difficult time in our life right now, that we might hear that word. Through your word, God, you might speak to us as we open ourselves up to you, receptive and willing to do your will. God, would you speak to us? God, for the rest of us, we go out of here today and at our campuses and venues, Lord, with full assurance of faith knowing that part of following you, the key first step, is to honor and receive your revelation. And we do that now. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. And we all say together, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.